repenting faith. It was Martin Luther in 1517 or so who nailed his 95 thesis on the door at Wittenberg. And the number one thesis was this, that when Christ says repent, Christians just keep repenting. It's not a one and done thing. And so today, this whole sermon is about this idea. Oh, you have a high and holy God. We are to have awe. And he's given us a great law, and it is high and holy, and we are to keep it up there and know how serious and strict and wonderful it is. But man, have we sinned and made a mess of things. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came, and he reconciled us, and he made us righteous for the rest of our days. Our identity, and I switched the order, is sinner saint. We are still totally depraved in our old man. The old flesh is bad, it's wicked, it's horrible. And in Romans 7 language, it still hangs around. But in Christ, we are sons, we are daughters, we are adopted into his family, we are his bride, we're his holy temple, we're his priests, we're his saints. And there's this battle that goes on. And we're getting ready to talk next week about worship, about the fight about progressing in sanctification and doing a bunch of really good stuff. But before we talk about externally doing a bunch of really good stuff, how do Christians live? I don't care whether you're the immoral son or the moral son. You're the immoral sinful son or the moral sinful son. And all we do is repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the table is here and the father comes out to one and all of his sons and he keeps saying what? Come into the party. Come into the party. Come into the party. This is all about this internal repentance that we have because of what God does through his Holy Spirit in our hearts. Luke 15 starts with this context. You have these reputable Pharisees. They are the best of the best, unbelievably serious about their personal devotions, their family worship, their corporate gatherings, keeping the ceremonies and the traditions, their display of morality, they're keeping their testimonies pure, and oh, how they loved and prayed for the revival of Israel. They were the best of the best. And in comparison... There, was the, there were these other people. They, they're called tax collectors and sinners. Uh, tax collectors. Government-funded thieves who would redistribute the wealth, especially from their Jews, give it to the Romans and keep a bunch of it in their own pocket. Sinners. They were people that weren't playing games. No little churchy niceness from them. Uh, they didn't love God. They didn't love God's law. They didn't want to come to worship. They lived like pagans. They lived like Gentiles. And, and they never really came to synagogues and temples. They didn't want to be there. And even if they did show up, a bunch of people wouldn't want them around. They would be shunned. So we have Pharisees and scribes, tax collectors and sinners, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is drawn near to all these sinners, whether they're tax collectors and, or whether they're Pharisees. He draws near. He comes to the earth. 
And what does he find himself surrounded by these people and he's okay with it? I mean, he's comfortable being in the temple. He's comfortable being in the synagogue. He's comfortable being at weddings. He's comfortable being at parties. He, he actually goes into their houses with them, believe it or not. He finds himself in awkward positions sometimes with scandalous women at his feet. He goes into the far off regions like Samaria where no really good Jew goes, but he's kind of okay with this because he's the great physician who's come to heal the sick. He's trying to seek and save the lost. And so he's pleasing to his father as Jesus is surrounded by sinners. Oh, if you're keeping up with some of the big debate today about whether Christians should be involved in this or that kind of a, a wedding or this and that kind of a, a parade, well, let me make it clear. Jesus was surrounded by sinners. He never sinned. He never endorsed, condoned, encouraged, applauded, or celebrated sin. Quite often, even in the midst of sin, while he's at the party, he's loving people with grace and truth, addressing their sin, and he always stayed on mission. He wasn't there just to hang. He was calling people from their sin, not marching in the parade, waving the flag, or celebrating the event. Jesus was so pleasing to his father as he was surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And he was so displeasing to the religious prudes. And that didn't seem to bother him because he cared about what his father thought and cared about reaching the lost more than he cared about keeping the self-righteous prudes happy. Jesus was so offensive. They didn't like his teaching that he proclaimed forgiveness of sins. They didn't like the fact that he didn't keep their traditions and ceremonies on fasting and feasting and washing and keeping the Sabbath. And they definitely didn't like the fact that he was not above reproach and worried about his Christian testimony. He was in the world. Really? He wasn't of the world. But he was all in. He was in the world. And so Jesus is not scared by sinners, whether they be the immoral bunch, tax collectors, and he's not also scared of sinners, whether they be the moral bunch, the clergy. So he presents three parables to them, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And what's the big point? You'll see it on the right behind you. God delights in the repenting faith of sinners. And he really doesn't care whether those sinners are of the tax collector and sinner type, the wandering sheep type, the dishonorable prodigals, or the legalistic churchmen or those really, really good-looking sons who stay close at home to the Father. He loves to see people repenting and repenting and repenting and repenting until the day he takes them home to glory and they don't have to repent anymore. I think I can walk you through the parable pretty quickly. We have the good, good father. He has a couple servants, probably many servants, a couple sons, much wealth, and his character is through the roof. Long-suffering and patient and kind and forgiving and loving, willing to forgive, willing to show mercy, willing to show grace, and incredibly consistent. Paul prayed for about the good, good father. That's this man in the parable. 
And he has some sons, at least two. And the first son we come in contact with is the immoral, sinful son. Yeah, he, he doesn't look very good. Back in the day when a dad was getting towards the end of his day, he would call the family in and they would kind of have this ceremony where he'd give the birthright and the blessing and the oldest son would get uh, two-thirds of the estate and become the patriarch of sorts. And everybody else would kind of divide up the other third. But the immoral, sinful son wasn't willing to wait for that day. He had no love for his dad. No love for the father. As he comes to the father and he says, in effect, I wish you were dead. I'm not interested in waiting for that day to come. He looks at his father and says, I know this may hurt you financially, but I'm asking you to go ahead and liquidate because I want you to now give me my part, my portion now. He will further sin against his father as once he gets the check and once he gets the money and fills the backpack with his stuff, he as quickly as possible gets out of Dodge. I want nothing to do with the promised land. I don't want anything to do with my father's Ponderosa. I'm ready to go off to a far country. He's basically looking at dad saying, I don't care about you. I just want my stuff. I want money. He's saying the same thing to his neighbors too, his family. Because when you have to sell things quick at a fire sale to liquidate in order to pay someone off, you're not waiting for the best of prices. He's basically looking at his family and he's saying to them, I know I'm going to harm you by this, but I'm getting ready to leave you because I don't want to be with you either. I just want my stuff. I want my money. And he further harms his neighbors when he goes to the far off land. He leaves the promised land, goes to the far country, the Gentile regions. And what does he do with his wealth? He squanders it recklessly on prostitutes, which is basically him taking his father's money and saying, I'm going to go and meet this disadvantaged girl and I'm going to get satisfaction to myself by hating her and using my dad's money for this purpose. He has no love for God, father, or neighbor. Why would I say God? Consider all the commandments that he's breaking. He's not worshiping properly in the Holy Land, laboring diligently, stewarding responsibly, honoring his parents, loving his neighbor, honoring the marriage bed, and he's full of covetousness and materialism. In effect, he's looking up at God and with brazen heart is saying, I love me with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I only love the neighbors to the extent that they serve me. I want to be my own father. I want to be my own God. I love me. That's the immoral son. He's like a tax collector and a sinner disreputable, looking bad, spiraling down. And what often happens? Suffering. Suffering follows sin. There's consequences to sin. Now, some of the consequences we go through have nothing to do with our sin. For example, the famine. He suffered famine. But then consider all the other things that he is now missing. His wealth is gone. His fun is gone. His food is gone. 
His friends, they proved to be no friends at all. And as God turns him over from depravity to depravity and withdraws his restraining hand of grace, what do we find? A beloved Jewish wealthy son in a far off land having to get food by employing himself to a pig farmer. And he's sitting there touching the pigs, which Jews don't do, feeding the pigs, which Jews don't do. How bad is it? In his heart of hearts on the inside, he lusts for the pig slop that the pigs are eating. This is the picture of the immoral, sinful son spiraling down, suffering. It's absolutely horrible. And does he have regret? Sure. But don't confuse regret with repentance. Saul had regret when he sacrificed those animals. Judas had regret when he betrayed Jesus. You can just turn on the news and you'll find people that have regret all over the place. That's worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. And how do we know he's not repenting yet? Because he still is trying to save himself. He finds himself miserable, employs himself, and tries to self-save himself. Perform well enough to somehow fix what ails him. Many perish in this condition. Immoral, rejectors of God, taking matters into their own hands, refusing to repent. But this story is a beautiful story because it uses those words, he came to his senses. What we see now is the gift. In your scriptures, I have them here, I'll send them to you later, I'm going to save some time. It makes it very, very clear that no man repents on his own. No man believes on his own. No man seeks God on his own. God commands people to seek him, commands people to repent, commands people to have faith, commands you to will that which is right, and we will never, ever do it. The Bible makes it clear that God is the one who commands repentance and faith, and then he gives what he commands. It's okay for you to pray with the disciples, Lord, increase our faith. It's okay for you to pray with David, Create in me a heart, O oh God, a clean heart, O oh God, renew a right spirit. And God's not going to sit back and say to the disciples, nope, you increase your own faith. He's not going to sit back to David and say, nope, I've done everything I'm going to do. You create your own clean heart. No, we see in the Bible that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. We see that they give glory and honor to God, that God grants repentance to people in the book of Acts. This salvation comes by faith, and this is not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. And Jesus says in John, you're not saved and born again by your own will, but by the will of him who calls you. And so here we have the prodigal, the sinful, immoral son in the pig pen. And he all of a sudden comes to his senses. This is the working of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the word repentance, but I'm going there. A beautiful story of someone who is, he's made no different actions. He's not changed one thing about his practice. 
But there is repentance, a change of thinking as he's sitting there going, I see sin and I hate it. And I, I see my efforts at self-salvation and I, I despise it. And I remember my, my father and the love that I have spurned and I'm an idiot. I want it. How many of his servants have more than enough bread? And I'm sitting here feasting at the table of pigs and I'm starving. And inside, he starts repenting and believing, trusting and having faith, mourning over his sin. It's an internal thing that then manifests itself in fruits of repentance. The internal repentance shows itself by external fruits of repentance. I don't know how long that would last. That's not up to us to hear that story. But inside, he was changed. He came to his senses. And how long did the faith on the inside manifest itself in a walk of faithfulness? I don't know. It doesn't seem to last very long for me. Repentance is that internal turning from sin and turning to God. Faith is that disbelief in self and a belief in the good, good Father. And this is what we see as he starts marching home and you start seeing the fruits of repentance. He leaves the pig pen. He leaves the foreign land. He leaves the prostitutes. He leaves his self-salvation efforts and walks in the direction of his loving, gentle, long-suffering, patient, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, gracious, generous, wise, good, good father. And what happens? Oh, the father in, meets him with sweet communion. He's looking down the road. Some people think he went there every day. My son, my son. Come on, son. Come home, son. You see the eagerness. I see him. I, I'm picking up my robe, tying it in a knot, and I'm running, which you normally don't do, but I'm going to him. He doesn't even get to make it to the Ponderosa gates before I arrive. What affection. Wrapping the arms, the tears, the crying, the rejoicing. My son, my son is home. The son begins confession. I think this is beautiful. For the father was forgiving, I think, before he confessed. The father wouldn't even let him finish his confession before the father is now saying, get the best robe. I mean, I know in my house where the best suit is. My sons have some suits, but I have the best suit. And I know in my house where the best ring is. Laura has the best ring. She's got the shoes too. This is what he's doing. This is my boy. This is my son. And I love him just as he is. And I love him way too much to keep him looking like that. And so he runs and he starts dressing him like royalty. Dressing him like his boy, his son. And then he says... Kill the fattened calf because we are feasting. We're going from famine, from pig slop, 
to the Father's table. This is what I do. And has he changed it all? I don't know how much he's changed. I don't know how much of the prostitutes he hates versus love. I don't know how that all works. I just know I see what the Father does. The Father is radical with his sweet communion. And we could just end the story there and I could say, come to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. We talked about the Pharisees being the best of men. Those kind of men that you want your daughters to marry and your sons to grow up to be. That's the moral sinful son. He's stayed home. He thinks he's obeyed all the Father's commands. He hasn't squandered his wealth with prostitutes. He's the good-looking one. We can give him a hand clap. We even find him when the prodigal comes, while the feast is being set up, the music has already begun. Where is the, the moral son? He's out in the field working. That's good. So if you really want to put me in a corner and say, don't you think he's better than the other guy? Sure. Don't you think he should have been more responsible? Yes. Isn't it better not to be with prostitutes than to be with prostitutes? Yes. Shouldn't you be laboring instead of squandering? Yes. Give yourself the clap. But do you see the common denominator here? The immoral sinful son, the moral sinful son. What's the common denominator? Sin. It's all on the inside and it comes out differently. And maybe in God's eyes, there's some degree, I don't know, in our culture's eyes, oh, we know the big sins, don't you do those. But truthfully, you don't get damned to hell because of your sins. You get damned to hell because of the sin on the inside, which manifests itself in lots of different ways. And so you can, I guess, give the applause to the moral brother because he's staying home. But that's like bragging that someone's dung is better than someone else's dung or minstrel rag is better than someone else's minstrel rag because God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And whatever degree you don't, you're just a sinner. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy. And if you give it a really good try and look good, that's not good enough. And so we have an immoral son who's a sinner and a moral son who's a sinner. And what does the father do to both of them? He goes and gets them. Because Jesus is very, very comfortable in the presence of sinners, whether they be the clerical type like me or the really bad looking type like me. They're different, but not really different. The brother doesn't love his brother. He doesn't love his neighbor. He won't even call him my brother. It's just your son. He doesn't want to forgive. He doesn't want to show mercy. He wants to damn his enemies, not love his brother. And he really doesn't love the father. For even though the father comes and says, my son, you're supposed to glory in my will and it's my will to party and you don't like that. You know why? 
because like the immoral sinful son, the moral sinful son loves himself with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and does not love his neighbor. And so they're both lawbreakers. And they're both pursued by the father. He was lost. Now he's found. You should be celebrating with me. And the story is left at that point with an unanswered question. Remember the context? Jesus is looking and he's saying, oh, I know how tax collectors and sinners respond. They, they come to me and I accept them. Hey, Pharisees and scribes, this is what happens. All heaven rejoices when people repent. Are you going to repent and come to the party? That's the context. And in this parable, we know how the father deals with the immoral, sinful son. Come to the table. The unanswered question is, what about us really good-looking people? Staying close to the father, trying to obey his commands, working zealously for him, looking good. The question is, are we going to repent? So I end with a couple words. A word, first of all, to tax collectors, sinners, lost sheep, prodigals, and daughters, sons and daughters. Come home. Repent. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Maybe your external sins look like they're worse than mine. I don't know how far down the death spiral you have come. I don't know if you find yourself in Romans chapter 1 or Romans chapter 2. I really don't care. This is what I know. Jesus looks out and he says, come home. Come home. Come to the feast. Come get my clothing. Come home. Repent. And maybe right now, someone here is in their chest receiving the gift. You right now want to turn from your sin. You want to turn from your self-performance and you want to turn to the Father who's way grander than you ever imagined. Today is your day of salvation. So now that you're repenting on the inside and you're trusting Jesus who died for you and lived for you and gives you not only reconciliation, but righteousness. What do you do? Come to the table, and then for the rest of your life, we're going to work. We're going to pursue fruitfulness. We're going to put things off and put things on, and we're going to dress ourselves in the gospel armor and cease to do evil and learn to do good. And I could go on and on forever with all. Well, yeah, we're going to do that. You know why? Because repentance shows itself to some degree in fruits of repentance and the new affection we have here will show itself in different actions and the new faith we have here will walk in some degree of faithfulness. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, tax collectors and sinners and prodigals, this won't be the first time, I mean, this won't be the last time you repent. Because I have a word now to all of us good-looking churchy people. Yes, Pharisees and scribes, us good-looking sons and daughters. This is the mark of salvation. 
for bad people who don't love Jesus can, can do things that look good on the outside. But true believers in Christ have the gift. He messes with their souls. The living water dwelling within springs up and starts causing you to repent. Turning from your lawlessness, turning from your sin on the inside. It's an inward change. Loathing your performance and adding something to the finished work of Jesus like you have to perform good enough to keep your salvation or really have it. No, we turn to Jesus who's way more grand and we keep coming to the table over and over and over. And who is this table for? This table is not for immoral sons and daughters who will not repent. And this table is not for moral sons and daughters who will not repent. This table is for people like me who find myself sometimes here and sometimes there. And I'm ready to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance is not this dark and dirty thing where we beat ourselves up. It's finding ourselves again in the pig pen, in the far country, lusting after slop. Going, I want to eat at my father's table. And I got this hankering that he's full of mercy and grace. And so we run back. And then finally, a third word. Here we see the heart that Horizon Church is supposed to have. We do not look at the sinners out there as if they're people to fear and hate and keep our distance from. No, like Jesus, we move in close. Like Jesus, we find ourselves surrounded by them. Like Jesus, we may find ourselves in some awkward places. Like Jesus, we may have some self-righteous prudes who say no good Christian should ever do that. Oh no, we do not endorse. We do not celebrate. But do we have intimate relationships with these people? Absolutely. For we were just like them, just looking different. May God help us to have the heart of Jesus, the heart of the Father, and throw huge, huge parties when the lost are found and the dead are raised to life. So repentance, I've told you, think through three things. A hatred for sin, a hatred for self-salvation, and a faith in God who loves me based on Jesus' performance and none of my own.